This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. Welcome to Pet Chat. I'm Jane Klein and Dr. David Tabret is with us again, our pet vet. Danny Boss is here too. We've got lots of news on pet events and other things that are going on. And David, your topic, your special topic today is... Yes, I'm, I'm going to give away a secret, okay? Oh. How to safely medicate your dog or cat. Wow. Mm, so hang in there for that one. Let's, David, talk about your special subject, the secret. The secret is All about right. to be out. Yes, I know. We shouldn't give away our secrets, but um, how Sometimes. to safely medicate. And it's a little bit difficult to talk, demonstrate on radio, but I'm going to get it's a practical lesson. Yes. So the, the thing that generally happens is that um, people, you know, they're scared of giving pills because um, they could get bitten. They're thinking that. Or the pills go down and come up two seconds later. So the medication doesn't get administered. The first thing I'd say is most pets, it's going to be a two-person job unless you've got a very compliant pet. So um, you know, generally two people involved. And depending on the size of the pet, if it's a bigger dog, they're down on the ground. But if it's a cat or a smaller dog, get them up on a table at waist height. Now, before you do that, though, get everything ready. Get the pills out. If you're using a, a, pill, a pet pillar or a pill popper, they're called, they're like a little syringe with a soft rubber tip and you put the pill in the rubber tip end and when you press the plunger it pops the pill out. Um, one of my secrets is I don't like putting my fingers inside cat's mouths so I'll, I'll use a pet pillar because it can get all the way down the back there. So you get your pet pillar out, you've got your pills out, then go get your pet because there's nothing worse than getting them up on the table and then going, uh-oh, where's the tablets? Oh, they're over there. Stay. <laughs> yes, they won't, um, and they get really frustrated. And the whole key to this is the minimal amount of handling that you can do. So if you're right-handed, which I am, I stand on the right side of the pet, okay, on their right side. and um, So that way my hand, my right hand, is going to be in front of their face, okay? The key with dogs and cats, very similar. If you point their nose at the ceiling, their mouth will open. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, a lot easier because the muscle tension reduces dramatically. If you leave their mouth level, very hard to open their mouth. So what I do is with my left hand, place it over the top of their uh, head in a cat's instance or in a dog over the muzzle. And I actually, with a, a, a dog, I usually fold the lips in over the teeth so that my fingers are protected. Their nose is pointing at the sky. And with my right hand, I hold the tablet you ready for this? This is the visual part. <laughs> Hold the tablet between your thumb and second... In, what's that? The middle finger. The middle finger. Yeah, not your index finger. Because you use the index finger to just then gently open the lower jaw. So mm. they're pointing up in the sky, all right? Your hand's on their uh, head holding the um, top jaw and your index finger opens the bottom jaw. You then just simply drop the tablet along the roof of the mouth so because it's vertical it drops to the back of the tongue quick poke down with the finger so it goes over the top of the tongue shut their mouth and a quick blow of air on their nose makes them swallow <laughs> oh really yeah blow yeah. on their nose and interestingly that clue which it works like 99.9 percent .9 of the time uh, i won't say 100 but that clue was actually taught to me by a paediatrician on how to give babies medication oh, when so my son works. was very young. So, um, yeah, and I thought, oh, that might work in dogs and cats, and it does. 
And David, it's best that you get it get it first time round because mm. trying to do it a second mm. time round is hard because mm. they know what's happening there. And you're listening to Pet Chat on Two NURFM. And, of course, you too can chat. 49216216 is the number to ring if you'd like to do that. And Judy has done that and joins us. Hello, Judy. Oh, hi. How are you? Got a question you'd like to put to David? Um, Yes. I have um, a seven-year-old blue healer, little short, fat one. Mm -hmm. And at this time of year, she has a lot of trouble with, um, I think it's an allergic reaction to grass and stuff, because she's sort of on the grass seed level Mm -hmm. when she goes through the paddocks. Oh, okay. um, and they're not actually seeds in her eyes, but her eyes just get really red. And I had a friend who suggested 10 milligrams of Finergan, mm. but I'm too frightened to just try something. Fair enough, too, because uh, uh, they're prescription products, and mm. um, you know they, there are a range of doses, side effects, and so on to be aware of. Mm. Now, with um, allergies that we see, it's interesting that, they occur even at this time of the year because traditionally we tend to think, oh, there's summer problems and so on. But as you've mentioned, that uh, the grass seeds uh, are out as well. And so any contact with those is a type of protein that gets through the skin, oh. often through the, the feet. And even if it, it irritates or enters the body through the feet, the eyes can react. And, oh, right. and that's the nature of allergy is that it's a, a tissue reaction but also um, mediated through the blood. So right. you get this uh, you know, reaction all over, and similar to allergies in people. So oftentimes antihistamines are very useful. Um, I'm not... Finergan, I haven't used a lot of, to be honest. Mm. I know some people do. There's short-acting uh, antihistamines, there's long-acting antihistamines, um, and people use different ones. And sometimes it's very much specific for your individual pet. So what works in one dog won't work in another dog. All oh, right. The, the other thing with antihistamines is that they're shorter acting, so they're a, a either twice a day or once a day um, medication, and the effect wears off after that time. They also can have some side effects. Now, the side effects are generally, they, um, and it depends on, on the medication again, uh, they can have effect on things like bladder function, mm. um, on uh, tear production. They can also have effects on behaviour and neurological function. Right. And that's why when you read the instructions, and I, if I use antihistamines, I always say to people, well, don't let him drive home because, you know, this make him drowsy. Um, sometimes it does the opposite. It actually makes them really excitable. And oh, they, they... Well, that'd be a change, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there is a range of medication that is available I'm not from haven't used Finergan a lot. It is a more sedating medication, so mm. um, that's probably why I haven't used it. And um, being a prescription product, you really need to talk to your veterinarian. And it also is part of a, a management plan because we always say you know wash them down straight away and things like that. Um, but I would say talk to your veterinarian about what's an appropriate antihistamine to use. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks for your call, Judy. Thanks, Judy. And Kay joins us now. Hello, Kay. Hello. How are you? Hi, Kay. Hello. I just have a question about why is there so few, is there a medical reason for why there are so few dog foods with fish? Sorry? If, oh, dog foods? With fish. Yes, I think they make cat food out of them. Yeah, I notice there is one on the market now, there chicken are. with tuna, but my dogs don't do very well with chicken, um, uh, dried chicken or anything because it seems to constipate them. Fish chicken's fine, but not the... Uh, 
yeah, there is there is some mm. fish products, but they're generally used as a um, exclusion diet, as a different source of protein for dogs with allergies. Um, like we were just talking to Judy, um, because sometimes um, dogs that have grass allergies and things also have an underlying food component. Um, right. But uh, so fish is often used as an alternative food because in the past the dog probably hasn't eaten any fish product, and so right. as a protein source, you know they they haven't been exposed to it. Okay, you'll find out that there are a lot of sensitive skin formulas of Mm. dog food in your super premium range at pet specialty stores would have a fish component. A couple that come to my mind is a ProPlan salmon and rice sensitive skin. So that's a a fish. There's eagle pack with an anchovy and sardine based as well. So And uh, Advance have got a tuna and rice. You can can Mm. be used to have a fish and potato diet. Yes. Um, But, um, you know, I'm going back. 20 years so i occasionally give them a tin of tuna in oil sure mm. uh divided up just the large tin divided up between the three of them but until i knew there was a if there was a reason for it, i didn't want to give them it too often or too yeah too much you well know? the reason why um apart from the protein source but a lot of people feed uh fish products is uh, for the benefit of the omega fatty acids yeah well that's what i was thinking yeah. i didn't think fish oil would really hurt them but i wanted to be sure no and the interesting thing is that when you look at the balance between omega um, threes and omega sixes it's the ratio is it's a slightly different benefit to what um for dogs to benefit they have a slightly different need in that ratio compared to people so right. um what that means is that fish oil capsules that we use for people aren't always in the correct ratio uh, for dogs. Yeah, no, I wouldn't give the dogs and uh, human things anyway. Mm. But so um, I do have one Maltese Shih Tzu who is a very itchy dog. The other two are all right, but so it's all right to keep giving them maybe once a month the, the tin of tuna between them. Or? I, I would go for sardines. Sardines, all oh, yeah. right. Okay. It's a it's a much more oily fish, and yeah. um, uh, even though the tuna is in oil, it's actually been drained, and then they put canola or yeah, olive oil on it. Oil, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. whereas the sardines often have a much higher oil content, and that's oh. really what you're looking for. So, should I give them each a tin each, or what? Oh, um, well, they come in different sized tins, but a yeah. lot of people feed it really regularly. I mean, it doesn't All have right. to be once a month, and probably the benefit would not be there if you're feeding once a month. No, fair enough. Good, that's all I need to know. Hopefully, I can cure his little itchy a bit better. Yeah, it will yeah. help. Executive K, Executive Chef K, going off there. Good <laughs> luck with that. And Frida has rung four nine two one six two one six. Hello, Frida. Hello. Yes, Hi, Frida. Hi. Uh, yes, I've got a question. Um, I adopted a little cat ten days ago from the Cat Defence, mm-hmm. um, and she has a bad rash on her face. They said it was ringworm, and they told me to put uh, cider vinegar on it. Um, but it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Right. And she scratches it, and, uh, and you know, she doesn't like me putting anything on it because it probably stings. Yep, yep. Um, now, ringworm, if that's what we're dealing with, but mm. there could be other things, okay? Um, yeah. So at the end of the day, I think you're going to need a veterinary attention for this for oh. a couple of reasons. Um, if it is ringworm, ringworm is a fungal infection. It's not a worm. Okay, the reason yeah. it, reason we call it ringworm is because they actually get this circular raised lump which looks like there's a worm under the skin. Oh, right. But um, it spreads and they're often found on the face and um, often in, um, you know, adopted cats and so on. Ringworm can be a real problem. Um, it can also infect people. Oh. 
Okay, so it's really important that we get on top of this and also the treatment of it. In an individual cat, um, it's quite feasible to treat it quite successfully at home. The problem is if you've got multiple cats or if they go into a cattery, um, then it can spread really quickly because the um, spores or the fomites can actually be carried from cat to cat on food bowls or by people or by grooming, and it, and it just continuously infects the cats in that cattery. And so there's a there's a risk that's how it's come in. Now, if you've only got this little cat... Yeah, that's yep. cool. Okay, so you've at least isolated it, right? Mm. But it can infect people, it can infect dogs, um, and it's really important that you need to treat it appropriately. Being a fungal infection, there's antifungal medication that can be used. Right. So it's one of those treatments where you go into the vet and you say, I think I've got ringworm, and they tell you to sit over in that corner and don't move because we don't want it to spread anywhere else, or they'll quickly move you into a room and say, now, don't touch anything because it is infective, and we're going to um, you know, treat it as a totally um, infective uh, pr- disease mm. and um, then start the treatment process. Well, um, yeah, but do you think if I went to the vet, would I have to take her? Or could yes. I... No, you've oh. got to take her. There are some tests that can be done that can quickly determine if that is the case. One of the things is they put you in a dark room and turn on an ultraviolet light, and about, depending on the type of fungus that's on the skin, 30 to 40% of them will actually glow in the dark. Um, Now, that means that there's a percentage of them that don't, but they've still got ringworm, but it's a very easy thing to determine. If it isn't a classic appearance, then sometimes they'll take some hair and put it in a little bottle and culture it so that they can see the fungus growing. Well, the lady I got her from said she had taken her to the vet. Mm-hmm. Uh, she found her abandoned and she took her to the vet and they had some antibiotic cream for her yeah. and, and they put that on and uh, and the side of vinegar and they, see, they she said that she was responding to that. It depends. Sometimes those anti- antibiotic creams often have an antifungal in them as well. Like they're oh. a bit of a catch-all. They'll have a local anaesthetic or an anti-inflammatory antibiotic and an antifungal. Um, if it's still there, and the thing about it is it hangs around for ages, you've got to treat them for like two weeks after it completely disappears. Oh, okay. So you need to get it followed up because if it starts to infect people, you're going to have all sorts of, all sorts oh, of troubles. Well, okay. I have, I'll have to take it to the vet then. You do. Sounds yep. like a good course of action. And Thanks, good luck Frida. with that, Frida. Now, Danny, um, I think we need to start on your folder of pet events. Heaps of pet events happening this weekend mm. around the valley. Jane, too many. So let's get through them straight away. First of all, Morissette District Kennel Club show is happening at the Morissette Showground. So lots of pedigree, purebred dogs being shown if you want to have a visit. It's Saturday and Sunday to have a look at those dogs and talk to the breeders. Now, the also, something of great interest, we've talked about it a number of times, is the Jack Russell Racing. Because open to all members of the public, and it will be held at Hillsborough Dog Showgrounds on Sunday, the 3rd of May. Jack Russells and Small Terriers are all welcome, and it's hosted by the Jack Russell Terrier Club of the Hunter Region in that's, New South Wales. That's this Sunday. That's this Sunday. And I don't have to drive up the valley to go and see them. No, you don't. Oh, how fantastic. So it is. It's <laughs> lots of fun watching them race. It'll be a 100-metre race and run. Now, the thing is, it's open to people who also want to learn how to train their, their Jack Russells and Small Terriers to race. Wow. Do, do the dogs race by themselves, or do their owners race with them? Usually it's, it's by themselves. 
themselves. They 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 have a start. They're really quick. They have a starting gun and starting blocks, and they go. Yeah. Being, and being a Jack Russell, they do fifteen of them in a row. Because they, do. they just don't stop. <laughs> so it is a great time to go and have a look at them in action. And also the club will be there to help teach people how they can teach their dogs to race. You can contact Ted on 49458515 for any more info. Something else that's always been very popular is the major Cat Expo that's being held this weekend. It's a once in a year event. It's held by the local cat club. Now it's held on Saturday, the second of May, from ten a.m. at the Lakeside Sports Centre in Gateshead. As I said, it's a once in a year event, so it's worthwhile seeing it because there's hundreds of varieties of cats. You've got all the sorts of different breeds, like Maine Coons and Orientals and Rexes and Russians and British. They're all there. They're being judged, so you're going to see the best of the best, and they look fantastic. The admission is $3 for adults, $2 for children and seniors, $6 for families, so very cheap. And the Supreme in Show judging will commence at 2 p.m. on that Saturday afternoon. The best of the best. The best of the best. And finally, the Australian Frog and Reptile Show, which is called Wild Expo, is being held at the uh, Castle Hill Showgrounds. Today, tomorrow and Sunday, where you'll see a major a range of many different types of snakes and other reptiles and frogs and uh, crocodiles even. So lots, lots to see and do at that show. Plus, they'll also be having um, the Best in Show awards as well on the Saturday and Sunday. So the a, best of the best in the reptile world. In the reptile world. Question about crocodiles. I understood that they need to be in a fairly warm sort of surrounding environment and that if it isn't, if the temperature isn't somewhere around about 24 degrees, then they actually can't digest food. So they get poisoned by it. How do you keep a crocodile if you're in these latitudes in winter? <laughs> Well, it's illegal. <laughs> Phew, I'm pleased but, about that. Um, no, that's a good point. Well, all reptiles um, are what we call poikilothermic, and that means that they don't generate their own body heat. They're absorbing. Well, they do generate some body heat, but they're absorbing their metabolic rate is that they absorb most of their heat. So their metabolism is very dependent on the environmental temperature. And one of the problems, for, uh, not crocodiles, but in snakes I've seen, is people that um, f- overfeeding their pythons and then they feed them too late into the season and they're getting cold and the food just sits in the gut and actually rots. And they do get extremely sick. Um, you know, they can die from that sort of thing. So oftentimes, um, you know, with uh, crocodiles that are kept in enclosures in parks and zoos and stuff, their temperature is regulated through the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talking about temperature, actually, Jane, is something I want to mention. It's that time of year when the evenings are cold. It's time to make sure your pets have got some nice coats and jackets to keep them warm. There's a whole lot of range of heating type of products available throughout your local pet stores, such as heated beds. I've got here, actually, a microwave dish that you actually put in the microwave. It's a flat dish, as you can see, and uh, you heat it up for just 30, 30 seconds, and it will remain hot, and you put it under the dog's bed. It'll remain hot for eight hours. That's like That's a hot water bottle. Um, like I a hot water bottle. Put it under my bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think we'll the all dog be can get up. their own. And one new product that's just come in, which I find fascinating, it's really taken my interest, are these new type of dog, dog coats called Dishlicker. 
dog coats. Now, why they're really good is they look like a normal normal type of dog coat, but they have far infrared technology which gives pain relief and recovery from muscular, soft tissue, ligament damage and any tender injuries. So the, the heat off the body of the dog then reflects on this coat, which has got a special material, and reflects back onto the body of the dog providing extra heat. And it's also got a natural um, organic product in there to make sure that any insects like uh, mozzies or even fleas stay away from the dog coat and stay away from the dog. So dish licker dog coats, fantastic new item. Very interesting. Come in their own little bag as well. It's 12 to 1. We've still got time for a call or two. If you'd like to put a question to David today, 49216216 will get you through to us where you're listening to Pet Chat. And it is a chat program, a question program. Diane joins us. Hello, Diane. Hello. I was just wanting to ask what the latest information was on dog vaccinations. Uh-huh. Dog vaccinations. Now, I'll preface this by saying um, I'm an emergency veterinarian, which I was a general practice veterinarian for 15 years and emergency, well, 13 years, emergency for the last seven years. So... To be honest, I haven't vaccinated a dog for that long, um, but we do keep up to speed with what's happening. There are a number of um, changes that are filtering through um, related to the diseases that we can vaccinate for and the frequency of the vaccination. So we're still concerned about the appearance of things like distemper, hepatitis and parvovirus, and parvo in particular we still... Um, well, even at the emergency centre, we still see cases of pets that have been um, infected with parvovirus. Uh, they, so they're, they're a series of vaccinations that they start off with as puppies, and they have every four weeks approximately. Sometimes it's more frequently um, at that early age if they're in a particular high-risk environment. For example, if you've previously had a dog with parvovirus in the yard or next door, it might be worthwhile to actually vaccinate them every two weeks as a protective measure. Um, from there, the other vaccines that we concentrate on would be, say, kennel cough, and that's actually a, um, multiple vaccines that there's a number of organisms that can cause that disease, um, and the vaccination is going to provide coverage across most of those organisms but it's not 100%, although dogs that are vaccinated, if they do get the disease, it's a lot less severe. They recover a lot quicker and with um, very little complications. So that the um, duration of immunity that they get from their vaccination varies uh, with each product. And, for example, with the kennel cough, yes, it's going to have to be done every year. And uh, the parvovirus certainly has to be updated at um, 12 or 15 months of age and what's happening now is we're seeing three yearly vaccines. Right. So we're starting to see this filtering through. And what we've found is that the duration of immunity, for instance, for distemper and hepatitis, is actually going to be longer than 12 months. And there's some controversy about how long it actually is. And you can get blood tests done to determine, is your dog immune to this, pro- uh, to this disease? And, and and if it isn't, then obviously you can go ahead with the vaccination. In most cases, people just follow the recommended program from their veterinarian, which may be annual at this stage or uh, the, the newer products are coming through and so we're moving to three yearly. But it's still important to, for instance, kennel cough is annual and uh, to have an annual health check because, as we know, pets age at 
what about seven years to one so we do need to keep up with uh, making sure everything else is covered and when you go in for a vaccination the veterinarian is checking all those other things as well as giving them the vaccination good luck right. with vaccinations okay so as they get older they don't uh, build up an immunity well they do but it's variable and and that's where this three yearly idea comes in and it depends on the disease so the three yearly is actually a different vaccine it is a different vaccine yes right. it's not just the yearly one given every three years yep. yeah yeah so, okay, good, good luck right. with that. Thanks, Thank you Diane. for your question, Diane. And uh, Monica joins us now. Got a question, have you, for David? Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, I'm listening to your program, and I missed the part where you spoke about fish oil. All right. We, we have a dog um, whose back legs are getting a little bit, like he's got joint problems. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is, yeah, this one of the beauties of fish oil is that um, we were talking about it in regards to skin disease. But in actual fact, it has so many other benefits, um, talking about um, joint function and arthritis. So often a fish oil um, supplement can be incorporated into management of arthritis, along with other medications and certain exercises and physiotherapy. And um, in the past, we've spoken with um, acupuncture and uh, various therapies. So it has benefits in uh, arthritis, has benefits in skin disease, there's query some benefits in cognitive dysfunction, like onset of dementia and so on, perhaps that we can uh, see an improvement there. Could I also recommend uh, t- having a look at a product called Joint Guard because that's got chondroitin and glucosamine. Both products work very well when there's some bone pains or arthritis oh, type right. of... Yes. Yeah, they're, they're, um, those products, are they're not a fish oil, but they're the actual building blocks for cartilage. Oh, lovely. So. Um, with, with the fish oil for the dogs, I, I can't actually give him the fish oil meant for humans. Is that right? Well, you need to be careful about the dose. And what's happened is they found in um, the dose that's required for arthritis management, um, some dogs will start to get diarrhea and could have pancreatitis from it. So oh, right. it's, it's, uh, it's a much higher dose and you need to be careful with administering it there are some products that um, where the fish oil is incorporated into the actual diet, into the food, the manufactured food, and that way they're getting it, but without that sort of sudden fatty oil hit on the stomach that, oh, right. that can make them otherwise feeling a bit nauseous and so on. So um, there are some products that will fit in with a program to uh, treat the arthritis for you. Good luck okay. with that, Monica. And we've time for just one more quick one, Nicole. Um, hi, um, I've got a five-year-old calf, and he's about mm, okay. He's about sixteen kilos, so I know that's quite heavy for him. Oh yes. But I was just—I've tried a lot of things like changing his food, and mm. I've tried to get him out and walking, but I haven't been successful with that because my hours for work change. Mm-hmm. Is there anything specific you can recommend? Uh, cavaliers certainly—they're. They can be lounge lizards, can't they, really? <laughs> they, so unless you're getting them out, it's a simple equation. It's energy in and energy out. And um, you can look at uh, different ways of getting them up and exercising. Obviously, walking is the best thing. High-fibre foods actually reduce the energy content. So changing the diet to something like a WD food, which is the prescription weight loss food, and okay. I, I would look at an intensive weight loss program. Now, most veterinary clinics are actually set up to provide that um, their nurses will administer and you go in and you have your Weight Watchers 
um, weight check and they'll chart it for you and they'll actually work out exactly how much food you need to feed. Okay. So So you stick with that and um, a little bit of exercise will get you back on track. Good luck with that one. And that brings us to the end of 2NURFM's Pet Chat today. Thank you, Dr. David Tabret. Thank you, Danny Boss. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, Jane. On 2NURFM.